When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hello and welcome back to another episode of The Lowdown with Brave Mama. It is your host, Steph Thompson here, and today we're doing something a little bit different. We're switching it up. Today, I'm on the other side of the microphone. Amber Lee from The Power of Birth is interviewing me on her podcast called Can We Talk About This? It's an amazing show that talks all things women's health and the things that you're just too afraid to say out loud. Amber Lee is an amazing host. She actually gets me talking about things that I don't even think I've really mentioned here in the podcast or in the book. And we are sharing this episode with you this week to continue to acknowledge the importance of Birth Trauma Awareness Week. While you're listening to this episode, if some things start to come up for you, please make sure you reach out to someone who can assist you, support you, and help you through this. Here's our chat with Amber Lee. Today, I'm chatting to Stephanie Thompson, founder of Brave Mama, cancer survivor, birth trauma advocate, podcast host, and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, What They Don't Tell You About Childbirth. In 2015, Steph suffered a birth injury that changed her body and her life forever. Stephanie is a mum of two and aims to ensure that all women can feel empowered to make informed decisions about their birth choices and beyond, while raising awareness for prolapse and ensuring women receive the answers that they deserve. And today she's here to chat to us about her story, her mission, and why your vagina is more important than you think. Stephanie, welcome and thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you. That is such a beautiful introduction. I really appreciate you taking the time to do that because it's not only when someone starts reading your bio back to you you're like oh wow okay wow I'm amazing (laughs) well I'm glad that I'm making an impact on so many levels so yeah thank you that was really absolutely are no you're so welcome yeah absolutely so I was saying to you before when I read your book I couldn't put it down and as I was reading every now and then I'd make this like sort of shocked gasp and a few to- I did it a few times and my husband was like, what the heck are you reading? What's happening? And I found your book shocking, devastating, overwhelming. I felt angry for you. I felt the injustice. I cried mm. for you. Mm. So many emotions and I'm just the reader. So imagine mm. being the person going through it, as you would know. I think your book is needed for people everywhere to actually understand the long life impacts of birth trauma and also so much of what we're getting wrong in birth. Before you had children, though, what shocked me even more was that you'd already been through so much in your life. (laughs) It was sort of like, wow, it's really never ending. You beat cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma. Am I saying that right? Yeah, lymphoma. Yeah, that's it. And then you had some fertility struggles as well, which... 
can be linked to to the cancer treatment. Yeah, but mm-hmm. then you know all of the roller coaster emotions that come with fertility struggles oh, in yeah. a relationship, on your mind, everything. It impacts every aspect of your life to the core of who you are. I think absolutely yes, mm-hmm. particularly as a woman, and particularly for someone like you who desperately wanted to be a mom. You talk yeah. about that quite a lot at the beginning of your book as well. <laughs> uh, yes, a hundred percent. Yeah, well, I, I wanted to ask. What were you looking forward to the most about motherhood then? Every element of it. I think before you become a mum, you, you know, you see it on TV, like the Hollywood style thing where you rub your belly and all the beautiful things that come with it, the emotions, the love, the nurturing, because I was in education for so long and I had nurtured children as if they were my own, I loved them so much. And I think that's what also led me on the path of a successful career because I was more than just a teacher. I was their second mummy because a lot of the years, I think 10 years were in kindergarten. So 10 mm-hmm. years teaching four and five-year-olds. And so I was their mummy during the day. And so I felt like I already had that role and felt I did it well. So I was really looking forward to doing it with some children of my own. Mm. yeah wow so then you finally fall pregnant and things weren't that linear for you your pregnancy seemed quite difficult you had a diagnosis of gestational diabetes that was actually quite intense and required a lot of time and effort I think you mentioned something like doing the finger prick and blood sugar check like six times a day yeah, or, or more sometimes. Sometimes it was. And as, as you just said that, it was intense. Looking back in retrospect, at that moment in time, I I didn't feel too much about it because the ultimate goal was the pregnancy. So for me, and I think I, I am grateful for having cancer. Some people may be like, what? Wow. <laughs> and if I can explain it like this. So we had that little tap on the shoulder that's in you. It really tells you that life is too short. But what it also gives you on the other side is a very different perspective on life in general. Mm. So a gestational diabetes diagnosis to me was like, okay, awesome. It just means I have to eat healthy, easy. (laughs) And, and And that's what it was. It was like I went to the education. I was like a full day that you had to go to learn how to eat, what to eat, when to eat. And so I just took that on as going, well, that's just a bonus because not only am I going to be super healthy, but this baby I'm growing is going to be amazingly healthy. Yes, the pinprick of the skin was awkward as I was teaching because there was no allowances to go and do that anywhere private. I had little children in the room that I couldn't leave. And so I had to go in the storeroom and pretend I was getting paper or something a few times a day and so that wasn't ultimately it wasn't too bad though because I was able to manage it and I just loved that I got to the point where I didn't have to have medication for it Mm. so you know what I mean like it kind of feels like it wasn't it wasn't the worst thing to have during pregnancy yeah I mean that definitely makes sense if you're comparing it to something like cancer Exactly. And, and you've think, lived through that yourself. <laughs> and I think that sometimes can be hard for people who haven't been through something life altering. Yes. Because my baseline of hardness is much higher than a lot of people. Yeah. So absolutely. T- tolerances for things like gestation or about diabetes, et cetera, is like 
okay, that's okay. I'm not going to die from this and neither is my baby. So that's okay. Yeah. Well, can we talk about your cancer diagnosis for a little bit? Sure. So I am curious to know, because you sort of, you do sort of breeze over it in your book. And I know that your book was specifically about trauma and motherhood. Yes. Um, But I found it quite interesting that even throughout your cancer treatment and, you know, that lasted a number of years, Hmm. you still had motherhood on your mind. Forefront. Forefront. The only thing. Because, and now it's quite funny because I can't remember how much detail I went into in the book that I wrote because it's been so long. But basically I had been in a relationship, a long-term relationship for quite some time. We had gotten engaged. We, I was 26 and I'd always told my nan when I was little, I'm having six kids by the time I'm 26. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm a bit behind the eight ball here. I've got to catch up. So in my mind, I was happy to start a family even without the wedding the wedding wasn't the big deal. And so I had gone into my GP that morning and said, just tell me what to take. I really want to fall pregnant. I haven't been on the pill for quite some time and nothing's happening. Um, And then it was one of those moments where at the very end, I said, oh, just before I go, I've just got this little niggling thing when I carry my handbag over my shoulder on playground duty. It's really annoying And I hadn't said anything before because the partner at the time was a paramedic and I had spoken to him about it. And he's like, oh, it's nothing. You you, you know, it's, um, it's probably just a poor muscle or something. And so when I had just said at the very end, but on the off chance to my GP, oh, can you just have, and anyway, so she started to have a feel around and then that feel around went on for longer than five minutes. And I was like, no one does that for a pulled muscle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so she said, oh, actually, what we might do, we might just go and get an ultrasound on that just to see what's going on. But this was on a Saturday morning. So mind you, nothing was open and I had to wait until Monday. Now, my partner had gone back because he had a, he was posted to the country. He'd gone back on the Monday. So I went by myself and as they put, as the sonographer was kind of, you know, looking around, she said to me, hang on, I just have to go and get the doctor. And I'm like, get me a bucket. I'm going to vomit. I'm going to vomit. Because not only, how was I, 27, seven years prior, I had been with my best mate from school who went through the exact same thing. I was in the room when they were checking and he, and they said, oh, you know, we think it, it needs a biopsy. I'm like, I've been here before. I know this can't be good. I'm going to vomit. So I vomited into the bin. The doctor came in. And then from then on, it was just a bit of a blur because I knew what was happening. And when I had rang my partner, he knew what was happening because we just had too much insight to know that this is not good. Um, My family still didn't quite cotton on. They were still hopeful that it was just a something else whatever whatever that was going to be doesn't matter and so um I think maybe a biopsy the next day and then it was confirmed it was cancer but the funny thing was I've actually written another book about it called the c word because oh yes from the minute you were I haven't published it yet though yeah the minute you have 
a cancer diagnosis. No one around you can say the word cancer. <laughs> I don't I don't know what it is. This is why I called the book the C word because everyone says so that Hodgkin's thing, like no one wants to say the word cancer because I think cancer really resonates with death, basically, yeah. mm. or being really, really unwell. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's what it was like. But that entire time I said to her, so do I still take the vitamins for pregnancy? <laughs> I probably was a bit naive and a little bit, I didn't, I didn't want to believe it. Yeah. I didn't want to acknowledge it. So she's like, let's just hold off on that for a little while, shall we? <laughs> mm. Could you say the word cancer? Mm, probably not, actually, mm, thinking. Yeah. yeah. Looking back, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Mm. It makes sense because, yeah, what you're saying, what, what's connected to that word and what that means. But incredibly, you have fought it, beat it. And I honestly think that that's something that happens in people's lives that are like the big, big thing in their lives. Yes. Yes. But then you've now fallen pregnant and give birth. And this is really when everything changed for you. Can we talk about what caused your birth injuries and what your injuries were that you sustained of course um to be fair at the time of writing the book I was still only um how my daughter was not even three Mm -hmm. okay so I still had a very um muddled understanding of what what caused it so to answer what caused it specifically I feel like I've been on a bit of a learning journey and three years ago it would just be purely blamed on the use of forceps because that's kind of what I was told as well and I thought well that's a very reasonable explanation however let's not stop there let's expand on that now that I have a better understanding number one is that I was a competitive athlete prior to pregnancy so after cancer just to to, to, you know join the dots I decided that I just wanted to run away and I'd never done sport before. And I just thought if I could just do a fun run or something. So I started training for that and ended up becoming a triathlete. Loved it so much. Then was competitive. And that was kind of like the start of the journey. So knowing what I know now, there could have been significant pelvic floor dysfunction due to the pounding of the pavement as a runner. And doing those type of exercises without even knowing what my pelvic floor was at that time. The second part was during cancer and, and chemotherapy, I became severely constipated. So that's an, now we know mm, yes. another major risk factor for prolapse. And the third thing was um, it, it, like unstoppable vomiting. So while I was having chemotherapy for the eight hours, I was it was going in and I was vomiting it out the entire time. So all of those things add to pelvic floor dysfunction before I was even pregnant but Mm. because there are no screenings or no kind of routine checkings of any of that I would I would wet myself jumping on a trampoline even in my 20s right and you can look back now and think well okay that wasn't normal yeah signs yeah yes yes but you only can join all the dots once you've know better (laughs) yeah this is really why I bang on a lot about know your body but the problem is a lot of women 
uh, and I see this in the birth world quite a lot, mm-hmm. are blamed for their lack of awareness and education around oh. certain things. Yes. And I honestly think that that is victim blaming. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the time, like we didn't, up until the late 90s, we didn't know the full extent of the clitoris, for example, right? <laughs> and I've heard you talk about, um, uh, it was on your podcast as well, and I had similar things, but the first time we ever heard the word vulva and vagina and that they were different and yes. all these sorts of things, right? So we're only just sort of now learning about the full range of our own anatomy. It's like we we understand very, very little, and mm. so I really think that this plays out a lot in birth. And the, yeah, absolutely. So I understand what you mean about the forceps and things. Uh, but yeah, it is, it is again, so much bigger than that. Definitely. Yeah. And, and no doubt they were a contributing factor yeah. to what happened to me. Um, but I and also on that journey, after speaking to a surgeon in one of our very recent episodes, he said, the use of forceps generally means something happened to precede that so had you had a big baby with gestational diabetes being an older mother um, the baby's positioning and all of the things that he was rattling off I was like yes 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 I had all of those things so Mm -hmm. the use of forceps alone yes they caused damage but probably the labor and the significant amount of time of active pushing all led to that anyway. So it wasn't just one thing on one day in one moment. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for to do that because otherwise it's unfair and, and I think it will confuse women who are either not pregnant yet or someone's talking to them about the use of forceps as a really only a negative thing. I know that there is politics to say that they should be banned and they should not be banned and you get that political arena but let's just take that aside and look at the mum as a whole picture, not just one size fits most. Yeah. Had anyone known all of those things prior, the, the vomiting, the, the constipation, the running, would I have been treated differently? I don't know, but quite possibly, quite yeah. possibly. Mm. Yeah. So what, are you, are you also had a midline episiotomy, is that right? Um, yes, I would, I'm going to say yes, but then the terminology, I don't know. So basically from the, the opening of the vagina all the way to the anus, to the, the kind of, they kind of cut it off into a direction, um, it, sorry, on an angle so that it can create space for baby to come out. Yeah. All the way down to your bum. Yeah. So it goes across. So I, the scarring now on the perineum goes from one hole to the next pretty much. So isn't that a third or fourth degree tear, technically speaking? I think when they cut it, it's not classed as a tear, but it's basically the same thing. But it didn't cut into the anal sphincter muscle. So so it stopped just short of that. Okay. I do remember my midwife saying, um, because she gave me very little information after the birth, even when we were trying to extract (laughs) what was going on, um, she said something like, oh, it was a very, very big episiotomy. I didn't even know what that means. Oh, there's just a lot of that that makes me very (laughs) uncomfortable. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. What were the birth injuries that you sustained? For those that haven't read your book. um... Yeah, predominantly, basically, I have 
uh, like he could give the clinical terminate, uh, terminology of a three-compartment prolapse. Basically, for me, what it looks like and feels like on a daily basis is that, um, and I incorrectly used to say my bladder was falling out of my vagina opening. It's not. Um, and so the bladder and the uterus and a bit of the bowel descend down the vaginal canal and I have a front wall collapse. And so by the end of the day, the front, the frontal wall of my vagina is out of the opening. So it, what it looks like is potentially um, a small rubber ball or sometimes the shape even of a turtle's head. <laughs> I mean, you've got to laugh because if you don't, you cry, but it basically looks like a turtle head popping out of its shell. And, and so you discovered this yourself. Oh, yeah. In the midst of being probably one week at home, one to two weeks at home once the swelling had all gone down and once it wasn't, it was black and blue down there, literally, um, that once the swelling had kind of all gone down that, and I thought, there's another baby in there. They don't know what they're doing. I think I'm having twins because it does. It looks like a, a, a round baby's head at the beginning of the day, yeah. Had you ever heard the word prolapse before? A pro what? <laughs> That's how I answer that question because yeah. I never heard of it in my entire life. I never even heard of an episiotomy. And if you look up, uh, I don't know if this has changed since, but I was horrified in, in the research from my book to find out the word episiotomy is not even on the list of one of our very highly reputable government websites on things to expect during childbirth. So there's, you know, morning sickness and baby blues, all of those things, but the word episiotomy is missing. And certainly the word prolapse is not on any of them, by the way, which needs to change. <laughs> yeah, but it's hard, hey, because it's like we certainly don't want to expect these things, but we need to be raising awareness and talking about them and, and yep. not disregard the fact that these things actually happen. So common. To a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. If, I mean, I can't imagine what you would be thinking or feeling seeing this state of your vulva and vagina. And I understand looking at a vagina after a forcep delivery in and of itself, which is very confronting anyway. Yeah. But to have something sort of bulging and sitting there and then you turned to your healthcare professionals and they were telling you that it was normal yeah I can tell you that scene it was <clears throat> it was like it was yesterday this one so I hadn't had the courage to look down there and I couldn't um really bend over like I was in a lot of pain still so I grabbed my phone and took a screenshot and um had a look and was like what is that and freaked out yeah. And said to my husband, like the bathroom sliding door was shut. And I was like, oh my God, this is, and he's like, are you okay? What's happening? I said, no, you got to call the midwife because something's wrong. I don't know what it is, but it's falling out. And I could hear him talking to her through the door. And she had said, oh, she's fine. Stephanie, she's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I think, I feel like it was about seven o'clock at night. And I just remember at that point yelling through the door, I'm not fucking fine stop telling me I'm fine I am this is not fine I don't know what this is 
but it's not fine. And the response was, if it's that bad, go to the doctor or go to the um, go to your GP. So that's what we we did. The very next morning, we went to the GP. Um, oh, sorry, it must have been that afternoon. Like, oh, sorry, the times and the the dates are very confusing. But I, then I had made an emergency appointment to the GP, and he said, I actually can't look at this because they had no clinical nurse available. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't care. I give you consent do it. It's like, I can't. And I said, well, there's a funky smell coming out. It looks like this. And he's like, well, we'll start you on these antibiotics. First thing tomorrow morning, we've got a nurse in, come back in. And it probably was only when he had looked down there, he said, oh, darling, what did they do to you? I started thinking, oh my God, this is not normal. This is not what my midwife's been saying. This Mm. is not normal. (laughs) So that was probably the catalyst to realise that, yeah, something was not quite right. And he had mentioned the word prolapse. Still didn't really get it. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was something that would come and go and I'd be over it um, and move on and go back to being mummy with a jogger pram and a triathlete. <laughs> so I know that you had you were in the MGP program, is that right? You had continuative care. Yes. Uh, which is very much encouraged these days and we we see all the statistics about um how much better outcomes are for mum yes and the Uh, gold standard of like i've heard so many times it's the gold standard of care a hundred percent so i'm confused as to how a midwife was telling you that it was normal had she never actually assessed you um yeah she had yeah she had and i want to be really careful about uh, careful about what i say in terms of this because I don't want to start a political debate between midwives and obstetricians. Of course, yeah. I honestly think it was a systemic issue within our hospital at that time of year. Remembering it's October, it's a really busy time of year for labours generally because everyone gets funky around Christmas, New Year. (laughs) And there's (laughs) always a plethora of babies born in October and we just happen to be one of those. Um. And when they talk about continuity of care as the gold standard, I'm going to agree with that Mm -hmm. compared to what I had before that, okay? So let's just start. I think it's important. When I first was pregnant, I wasn't part of the midwife program. I was part of the hospital program where everyone goes in and I can only liken it to a cattle station. You go in and your appointment, you have to be there by 3.30 3.30 or 4 o'clock, which caused problems in the workplace. And we sat there, Amber, until 6.30 at night before we were seen because there were just people everywhere, babies, bellies, kids. It was a room jam-packed full of people. And then we saw um, and the doctor once and that was like the first, hey, we're pregnant. It's amazing. And it was very short appointment, not much information. And I just said to my husband, what is this shit? Yeah. What is this level of care? Knowing too, having gone through the cancer journey throughout that, I was able to self-advocate for not this rotating doctor visiting thing. There was one oncologist I would talk to and that's it. Quite often they would say, well, you have to sit in the waiting room, just like the cattle station and wait until she's available. And I'd say, okay, I'll do that. I was that stubborn. I was happy to sit and wait for her because 
you don't have to keep repeating your story mm-hmm. <laughs> to every new person. And she understood me. She had my file. She knew the like type of communication I liked and what was helpful. I wanted that in pregnancy. I knew I wanted that. I didn't even know that an MGP program existed. <laughs> it was only after talking to my neighbor and she just had a baby at the same hospital. And I said, what is with that waiting for like two and a half or more hours to see a doctor for 10 minutes? Mm. That's not lovely. That's not what it looks like on TV, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And then she explained to me what what the midwife program was and I was like, I need to get myself onto that. So initially when I applied, I didn't get in. Um, They were too full, even I was only seven weeks pregnant maybe. (laughs) It's like because everyone has this as the gold standard of care. And so um, I, I I think I I might have actually probably tried to advocate for them and say, look, what can we do? Because how can we have a system that has a tiered system within a free medical system where you the haves and the have nots even within the same room? Because everyone who was part of the midwife program would walk in for their 4.30 appointment and go straight in. Like, how, how is that? What Do we need more midwives? Who do I have to call? Yeah. <laughs> and so I think then we kind of um, moved forward a little bit and I was asking my doctor, like, how do you get onto this program? Like, oh, I really fought for it. And then finally got the call to say um, another mum had been kicked off the program, like I don't know where that terminology came from with this particular lady, but I could come in for the full assessment to see if I could be part of the program. I mean, it was like a Friday night, seven o'clock on a Friday night, and I went through and we were there. For, I was there for an hour or more, going through my full history, mental health, everything, everything, and then I was accepted. It was like the best moment. I was felt so honoured and so privileged at the same time, really disappointed for the people who don't get access to that. Absolutely. I believe the stats are like 8% of Australian women have access to continuity of care models. Yeah. It's wild. It is. And so this is why I think I want to make it really clear, even though my experience in the MGP program was not positive and there were so many mums like me who went through something similar, I don't think it's the program alone. No. Childbirth. Childbirth ideology as Absolutely. a whole is where the problem lies and where that probably led to my cascade of stuff. Because I think sometimes even midwives get confused and say, well, if you were part of MGP, why did you have a cascade of intervention? I know. <laughs> right? And that's that's a lot of questions that one mum doesn't have the power and ability to answer. Yeah. Because I didn't have that pol- that power and knowledge at the time. Yeah. And, and that's the trouble, hey, because I find a lot of the time we've got lots of birth advocates sort of trying to arm women and empower women with all of this information and knowledge. And, you know, I've heard people say they pretty much have to get a midwifery degree to birth a child, which Hmm. in my mind is bullshit. (laughs) Um, And then you have, yeah, like these systemic issues with midwives as well and and the battles that they face just in their daily jobs a lot of them end up leaving because of them yes and then not even to mention obstetricians as well there's a whole 
the range of opinions and yeah, yeah power. exactly power and, dynamics yeah. everything yeah so yeah I totally agree with you it's so 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 much bigger than just us in the birth room yeah Absolutely. Yeah, and, and beyond our pay scale too, Amber, like mm. as, as a mum, like you mentioned earlier, women uh, carry the burden of having to advocate and learn this stuff themselves. How can you when you don't know? You don't know what you don't know. You don't even yeah. know where to look. How can you Google search the word prolapse or episiotomy if they're not even in your repertoire of language ever? You can't. I remember my mum saying to me, well, why didn't you ask me about that before? It's like, I didn't even know the word. Yeah. How can I? Yeah. You know, and, and yeah, it, it is. Um, it's heartbreaking to learn how political it is, and how the woman is not really at the forefront of everyone's mind all yeah. the time. Yeah, absolutely. I hear you. <laughs> well, looking back now, you may have answered this question, but looking back now at your first birth experience, how do you feel about it? Hmm. That's a heavy question. Uh, I wish it was different. I wish it was like the second. I wish I would have been assessed as Steph, the individual, not another woman in my area having another baby. Or, you know, I I had a boss say to me, you're not actually sick because I had to take a day off to do the gestational diabetes course. I don't think I can approve your sick leave because you're not actually sick. And you're not the first person to have a baby. And I was like, whoa, okay, that was heavy. I'm not the first person to have a baby, but fuck me, this is my first baby and I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm following the rule to the T so I don't lose this baby because I fought so long to try and have her. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, I, I, yeah, how I feel about the birth now is that I always try to be positive as you know, look at the the things that were good in that experience and take that with me and leave the other stuff behind. But every single day because of my prolapse, it is hard to leave it behind because it's literally I'm carrying, I'm carrying it in my body, in my hand sometimes. Yeah. I'm yeah. holding on between my crutch to make it to the letterbox or to finish cooking dinner or you know, oh, it's just and wild. So it doesn't really let me let it go, even though I fight hard for it. And um, I do what I do now so that my little girl doesn't have to go through this. Yeah, absolutely. All of our girls. I, well, let's talk about, so holding your crutch just to get to the letterbox. I, I understand people don't actually understand what it means to live with a prolapse. And I know you can have different varying degrees and all that sort of thing, but your injuries themselves and what it looks like in your life, what are the physical implications of these injuries? So what does a day in the life of Steph look like then? Yeah, that's a really awesome question. And I tried to portray that. We actually made a short film where it was in the day. I know a lot of people don't know. I'm like, did I miss this? What? (laughs) It was in a short film festival last year called My Invisible Disability. I'll show you the link if you like. So it was a short film that had to be under five minutes. And basically it's a snapshot in the day of the life of how I do function because for me life is too important to not function. And so it walks you through. And and to to give a a bit more of an insight, I think even women with a grade one or two prolapse, 
it's hard for them to understand what it's like for a woman with a grade three or four prolapse with bilateral avulsions because everyone is going to be affected differently. You could have a stage one prolapse and your symptoms really alter your life. Mm -hmm. I've heard um, from doctors about women who have had a stage four prolapse where it's basically sitting in their underpants. Yeah, but they have never done anything about it. Not really symptomatic. And it's part of mother, you know, their, their older generation where it's part of motherhood. And so it really depends on you as the individual. But for me, we go to bed at 7.30 at night. So our kids are in bed. We go to bed late and lay down flat because for me, I don't see the point in um, laying down just for a half an hour or so just to get up and do the same thing again. So by 7.30 at night, my body is that fatigued from literally trying to hold my pelvic organs into my body that I'm really tired and I have to lay down. Um, So there goes any social life past 7.30. Sometimes we might do dinner or a movie, but no more dancing, no more. It's hard to go to work. Anyway, I, I digress. But basically in the morning when you wake up after being horizontal for, you know, however many hours, it's less symptomatic. So I can wake up and I can have a shower. I can do my rehab. I do pelvic floor rehab every single day. Um, even if it's just 10 minutes, cause I'm not going to pretend I do it all because mm-hmm. you don't, um, get the children ready and do lunches and whatnot. Once I've taken them to school or kindy and come back, I do dinner prep. So dinner prep is done in the morning, then I have to rest then we might do something else. And a lot of my days sitting sedentary, podcasting and writing, it's an amazing career to be able to sit down (laughs) and just, um, so laying down is better than sitting and sitting is better than standing. So any type of standing and walking causes gravity to pull the organs down your vaginal canal and sit at the opening or out of the opening. Mm. And then we're kind of in that afternoon time where I need to sit and put my legs up against the wall just to try and get gravity to push it all back in that's not always possible so what do we do we just carry on and you live with it and sometimes you're kind of holding it and you're clenching a lot you cross your legs a lot and that has just been our daily life um I can't tell I can't actually remember what it feels like not to have it anymore wow going on nearly seven years so I feel like this is my new normal. This is just the way it is. Wow. Do you feel angry? Yeah, sometimes, um, especially earlier on. So all of those mixed emotions of anger and loss and grief, Mm. um, frustration, why me? Those days are spaced out and they don't last as long. So a whole lot of work done with psychologists and other different types of therapies has helped me really come to a place of acceptance. I want to, can I add another story in here? It's not quite related to prolapse, but it's significant. And I Mm -hmm. think it's significant for people to actually understand where that, like that, that baseline is just like with cancer. My very best friend was diagnosed with motor neuron disease before Elsie was born and so I have watched her and her strength in living a life the best way you can even though a disease is killing you day by day by day so for me I think I draw on her strength a lot 
which yeah. is why I seem okay. So if you see me on social media and I'm smiling and I'm doing these amazing things, it's because I'm genuinely happy just to be here and this is what I've got and I've accepted that. She had to accept that one day her lungs won't work even though her brain is saying breathe, breathe, and they just will give up. The strength to do that is beyond phenomenal. And if I'm ever having a bad day, I just really, 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 really draw on that strength of seeing that. Wow. Mm. I think perspective is definitely everything a lot of the time. But at the same time, I think it's important as well to on those days where you are having bad days, you are allowed to feel the way that you feel. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. Both of those things can exist, right? Yes. And I do, it's, it's a specific tip that I've shared with a lot of women and it's something that Sean had shared with me because you need strategies. You can't just yeah. say, oh, but you know, your best friend was dying. So that you had to, you had to just all of a sudden be okay with it how you are it doesn't work that way so one really clear strategy that I use and still use it now I think I even did it the other day is that you pick one song because generally songs are like four to five minutes and you put it on and you allow yourself to really feel whatever that is if it's anger if it's fear if if the tears are just streaming down your face with sadness and grief you let it happen And then as the song comes to an end, that's when you kind of pull yourself in. You're like, okay, I've done it. It's a release. Like, you know, you hold on to this stuff so tight and that one song is a release. And if you get to the end of that song and there's still more, then you just play another one and then you can try and regroup. So it's just giving yourself that permission to be not okay. Yeah. And then also know that by the end of this song, you're giving yourself permission again to feel okay yeah. it works I promise you it works <laughs> no I yeah I'm so with you and I I really do believe that expressing emotional healthy emotional expression is really powerful mm-hmm. if you give yourself that space to feel it and then somehow as humans we pick ourselves back up right we but we when do. we bury and ignore and suppress oh and hold yeah it I feel like it just yeah it festers and it becomes something unhealthy it generally then comes out at the wrong place at the wrong time to the wrong person you end up going and have like a a verbal diarrhea at someone who's taking your car spot or (laughs) yes I can't even imagine I can but obviously I can't um imagine where your head would have been for the following years after all of this and learning and understanding what had happened to you would just be bringing it all back up, you know, and to process it over and over and over. And then still, like you said, every day, having strategies in your day, it's still at the forefront of your mind. Yeah. It doesn't go away. It was very confusing. I will tell you it was very confusing, at least for the first three years, because I was still being told it was normal, number one. And number two, I was also being informed that I could have surgery. So surgery was going to be the magic fix. Yeah. And so when I learned that it wasn't so normal and that surgery was off the cards, off the table, sorry, 
um, that's when it probably really started to take effect and hit me emotionally. It's around the same time we wrote the book. <laughs> yeah, okay. I find it, I have found in my own experience, but then also in others, when you're sort of in the depths of it, that's mm. the best time to get something like that on paper yeah. because it's sort of like you're living through it. So you're able to give the best explanation and description and expression of what it means in that time. Yeah, because it's happening. Because it's happening, yeah. And then you move on and in reflection, you're sort of writing it in past tense and there's sort of like less emotion there and there's there's just less of it. I agree. Um, yeah, and so I do think in the moment that's really powerful. So I love that you write now too and I would encourage anybody listening. Uh, it's something that I've done as well, mm-hmm. getting it out on paper in mm-hmm. those moments. And because then even then, you know, a year could go by and I look back at what I wrote at that time and think, yeah wow I'm, I've actually come such a long way yeah. <laughs> in such a short amount of time but yeah and there's I, definitely something to it I think writing too so what started for me back in 2007 was just journaling the cancer journey because I thought I it was a release I didn't think um I would ever be a writer I was never that great at school so I was like this is just for me and I would just literally brain dump no judgment, no paragraphs, sometimes no punctuation. It was just typing words onto a page and and now learning that when you are going through something like that and it's such a grieving process, it's hard to find the words to verbalize. It's much easier to not say them out loud, but to write them. So that then kind of morphed into, I've been writing letters to my, my daughter since the minute I knew I was pregnant. Wow. And I have written to her every single moment I felt like I needed to share something with her. I think there's just 200 pages or Wow. I actually think that's amazing. I love that. Yeah. And I had to talk to her as if she was already in the world, you know, like as if we were already wow. these kindred spirits. So she knows the journey. Um, I don't think I've spoken too much about the birth. It kind of stopped and then it started again maybe when mm-hmm. she was one. And so I just feel like it's always been a really nice way to cope when typically before obviously having a community, I was really private about how I thought and felt because I was scared of being judged. Yeah. And so on paper, in your diary, in your computer, no one is there to judge you. And so it works. And I'm like you, I would encourage anyone to go and get a $2 notebook from Kmart and a nice pen and just start even by drawing a picture because sometimes we overthink, oh, what am I going to say? Just do something, draw lines, and then it will eventually come to a sentence or a word, a list, and then a paragraph. And before you know it, every day you will get up and you will look forward to writing something down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every, I see every, the power in it. I do. Every single one of us has a book in us, I'm telling you. <laughs> I love that. (laughs) Multiple, multiple books. There's no reason now that we can't all be authors of our own journey. And I would encourage anyone who is interested because I didn't write a book on my own. I had an amazing coach who helped me really realize that this book was not just about um, what happened. Mm -hmm. It was about my healing. Like it was my resolve. Yeah. 
the words that my husband said to me because I went to an author's academy and it just happened to be in Bali at the time. <laughs> when I got yeah, when I got home and my husband had said, "You took that woman to Bali and you've brought my wife back." I mean, that's a transformation you can't put a dollar figure on. You can't put even words on sometimes because even in that first three years, I thought I was still being a wife and a mum and doing everything the way I had pictured with the workarounds that I had to physically. For my husband to say that, you've brought my wife back? Like, wow, you know, you don't even know that you're lost until someone helps you find yourself. And that's what writing can do. Speaking of your husband, how has this impacted your relationship and how are you ever ready to be intimate again having these injuries? And I only ask that because at the Brunch for Birth Trauma event that you spoke at, you mentioned that you were seeing a sexologist and that that had been helpful. So, yeah. Mm. That's a really, really good question. Part of that really part of that answer is true because we've never really talked about it. And I think the the easy part for that is that when you have two children under two, mm-hmm. you're in the thick of it. There's almost like this unspoken understanding that it just doesn't happen like it did pre-kids anyway. And so we had that little bit of protective layer of going, well, everyone's exhausted. It's totally fine to actually go to bed and just sleep. Um, as they're getting older, it's changing. And I know in the presentation I'd spoken about the sexologist thing, it's all still really new. I do want to be really clear about that. I don't have the answers. I don't have um, the solutions because we're only just starting to begin to work through that now. It's still very early days. Um, and I know when you said, oh, how prolapse changed, it's still the same way. Mm. As in sex life hasn't magically gotten better over time. Yeah. In, in terms of what it's like for me, a lot of the times I have to say no to um, penetrative intercourse because of the prolapse. And I have spoken about it on my podcast because it's it's me I'm talking about, not him, um, with Liz Skinner, was that when you have your bowel is full and you have a prolapse, there's a lot of space at the opening of your vagina that is um, occupied with, you know, your organs and, and your stool. If you are to try and have sex during that time, if you haven't been able to empty your bowel, if something inserts itself, you can feel it on both sides. So you can feel your stool moving around. You can feel it rubbing. It's a, a God-awful experience that I'm like, now I now have learned if I've had a huge meal at nighttime or whatever, or I haven't been able to go to the toilet, it's a no-go zone. I just say, sorry, I need to go to the toilet. And building up the courage and the language and the dialogue over time to even tell him that rather than just going the whole rejection, I've got a headache, I don't want it, you know, like that type of Hollywood thing. Now I'm learning to say, I'm sorry, I'm backed up. I'm going to have to wait till I go to the toilet or another day. So that he doesn't have, he knows it's definitely me. It's not him. That's taken a lot of work. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. It's taken a lot. And, um, I wish it was different. I wish it was like it was 
before children. And I think that the number one question I get asked from women is, how did you have a second baby? And I would go straight into, oh, and I had this and I did it. This. And they're like, no, no, no. How did you even fall pregnant with a second baby? Yeah. And I honestly say it took me to be um, very tipsy at my daughter's first birthday to relax because prior to that, I was so tense and I'm clenching all day. Any type of penetration was painful. And so that's what it took, basically. Mm. Um, Working with a sexologist to learn that sex does not mean penis and vagina penetrating. (laughs) And there are so many other things that you can do. It's almost like uh, your eyes are open, just like when you're learning about your anatomy, like, oh, oh, what's it? And it, it, it's because of the taboo and shame around it. Like even having any type of sex toy was always like, oh, you must be dirty. You must be a, an, an info. Like yeah. that's what I grew up with anyway. So I never had one. And my best friend bought me my first one. How funny is this? <laughs> it was under her Christmas tree one year and it, it knocked itself on. And it was like <gasps> going across the floorboard. <laughs> oh that's the best I was like, what is that and then she gave it to me I was horrified I was like why are you buying me this this is really yeah wow because that's how we grew up like you only you only ever looked at those things or did those things for either gimmick or if you were not like and and because we were not taught that sexual pleasure is okay for women it was always just an an act to fall pregnant and it was all about the male yeah And I'm so glad we're having this conversation because we've got to change that for our girls and for ourselves. Mm. So we've had two sexologists now on the podcast to talk about self-pleasure. And I'm thinking, I love everything you're saying because you now make me not feel like I'm doing something wrong with my own body. Mm -hmm. Truly. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sharing that because I know these things can be really difficult to talk about. Yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> no, I no, I imagine it not being easy at all because one, not only is it taboo, but there's a whole another layer to it with prolapse. So yes. I appreciate you sharing with me. Okay. Thank you. It's all right. What do you think is lacking in the information or education we give to women prepping for birth? And what would you like to see change? Hmm. The more the better. I think the Mm -hmm. more that we are given, the better, the earlier, the better. What I would like to see change is that, like when I started the Brave Mama community, I had to really, at first it was just, oh, I'm just sharing what what I've gone through and what I've done. Here you go. And then I was like, if I want to make a real impact here, I'm going to have to have a plan and a really clear strategy about what we can and can't do. I, as Steph, one mum, cannot change childbirth ideology as much as I would love to, as much as I would love, but I actually don't have all the correct answers either. I don't think because everyone's journey is so, uh, you know, independent for them. I know that sounds wishy-washy sometimes, but I just, I can't say do A, B, C, and D, and that won't happen to you. What happened to me? Because I can't guarantee that. Mm -hmm. What I do want to see happen is that we are cared for for much longer. And I'll describe that what that looks like is that 
when I, you know, when you peed on a stick and you went in to get the blood test to confirm if you're pregnant or not, from that very moment in time, up until you are in labor or having a cesarean, however you choose to birth, someone holds space for you on that entire nine month journey. Because just like you said earlier, some people feel like they need a midwifery degree to birth a baby. You didn't quite agree with that. I kind of think, well, if if we knew more, then yeah, ultimately it should be easier if we have a better understanding. So on that journey, to make sure it's unbiased, I want you to have, I want my, I think about Elsie, I just think about my daughter. I want her to have a GP who looks at her, her history, everything about her and says, okay, so what we're going to do next we're going to introduce you to what is called a midwife. This is what midwives do. They do A, B, C, and D. They can't do G, F, E. Like, you know what I mean? Like they, they can't do forceps or whatever. So what they can and can't do. Then maybe at the next, um, what do you call it, incremental um, time timeline on a pregnancy, here's an obstetrician. This is what an obstetrician does. They do this, this, and this. Here's an anaesthetist. This is what an anaesthetist does. And just, he's a doula. And so he's a psychologist. Mm. If you are scared about birth, let's work through those fears with you. Here's a pelvic floor physiotherapist specialist. Let's assess you. Let's look at you as an individual. Here's a dietitian. So that someone along that whole time is saying to you, I'm here for you. And I know that costs money. I know this sounds like, oh, pipeline dream, pie in the sky dream, but that's what I want. That's what I want to see for my daughter. I feel that. I do. It's like woman-centered, woman-centered care with additional layers. So here's all of the information. Yeah, because it's so complex. Here's how it all works. Yeah. But also, what do you want? How do you feel? Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah, I do too. And that. And that to be available for everyone. None of this tiered. And I know that it it exists anyway. I know we have private health care and we have Medicare here in Australia. But wouldn't it be amazing if all of us had access to that to some degree? So you mentioned that you had baby number two. How did you mentally prepare for this? But also, what does vaginal birth after prolapse look like? Because I think a lot of people imagine your organs being pushed out with your baby Mm. or making your prolapse worse and things like that. So what was sort of different in your birth prep this time around? And then what does vaginal birth after prolapse look like? Yeah, I think everything about my second birth was different. And I think naturally when someone goes through something traumatic, they want to run in the opposite direction to trauma. And for me, that was from midwifery leg care to obstetric care. People do it in the opposite direction as well. And I needed it to be everything different. Like I couldn't even, I didn't feel I could even step foot into the hospital where the trauma happened. So I had to go to a totally different hospital, which I sourced and was able to do. I feel very privileged that throughout my teaching career, I had access to private health insurance that allowed me to do that for the second birth. Unfortunately, I hadn't ticked to the right box for my first birth and I didn't know that until it was too late. So there's a tip for anyone who who already has private health insurance. 
and you have that privilege to just make sure you've checked checked the box for obstetrics if you're planning to have a family because then you've got choice right and that's part of the privilege is to have choice so with the second birth I found an obstetrician we went obstetrician shopping there was went in and had an appointment with one I was like you are not my guy I think I was seven seven weeks pregnant and he said oh let's just wait and see if it's even viable first hey and I was like wow you're not the person that's going to birth this baby knowing I've just opened my heart and shared my trauma with story with you and you're like, let's just wait to see if it's viable. Um, and so all the preparation was pretty much like I just described to you earlier, Amber, about having people walk with me and hold space for me for that entire nine months. I was petrified. I was so scared exactly what you described that my bladder was like a plug and that if the baby wanted to come out vaginally, it would bring every single internal organ out with it. And I honestly had that imagery. So I was really scared about that. And only having my obstetrician, that continuity of care, every time I went in, he knew to book at least an hour, an hour and a half appointment for me because I'd come in with my 20 questions. (laughs) And I would say, but what about this? And what happens if this? And every single one he answered until I understood. And I was very lucky to have that with him. And so when it did come to birthing my son, I knew that we had a really clear plan. And I said, I have to have a cesarean. I just couldn't handle it if something else was to happen. And he said, I think let's just talk about that some more. So through that journey, he educated me. So I got to the point and I had the same thing echoed by my my prolapse surgeon who said, you can absolutely birth vaginally again. Unfortunately, because the damage is already done. So the baby should, in theory, come out easier. For me, that that's exactly what happened. But the clear strategy was to lay on my left-hand side so that my bladder could flop away from the opening, so move away to allow the baby to come out through the vaginal canal. And the caveat was if at any point mentally I was not okay through the labor that, and if I said I needed a cesarean, my obstetrician was open to that. He didn't make me have a vaginal birth. I just want to make that really clear. So being informed and having the information to make a decision, that's what I would class as a true informed decision because I hear that buzzword a lot and I'm like, How can you make an informed decision when you don't know all the information? Um, So, yeah, so I was very, very grateful to have that process. And I know many women who have talked to me after either reading a blog or listening to a podcast about a second vaginal birth after trauma and, and prolapse, I should say. And some people opt for a cesarean because mentally they're not okay or their body and they find an obstetrician that can do that for them and I think good on them and I I hate that people say oh you know cesarean rates are too high and this and that some women just need to have one and it's their decision so let them bloody do it let them decide what is best for them right I totally agree with you I don't think that people who have a problem with the cesarean rate is because of the women choosing to have it I think it 
I think a lot of the time it's linked to the emergency issues. Um, I don't know. This is, and again, we're one person, right? So it's the world that we're in and the, the people we're around and <laughs> the conversations that we have. But yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And in the birth world, and, and I totally agree with you. If women want to birth a certain way and they have access to it and they have the right person caring for them, then it's it's absolutely nobody else's business what they do with their body. I totally agree with you. And I actually just find it so fascinating that you can vaginally birth after a prolapse because in my mind I would have assumed without, you know, I've got friends that have prolapses and things, so I've had these conversations, but I, I would have assumed that you couldn't. Yeah, I did too. I, so, I, I went in to see my surgeon to mm. say, oh, I'm going to have a cesarean. He's like, hmm. Why, why do you think that? Like, he was just curious. I was like, well, because I can't, of course I can't have another vaginal birth. He's like, well, many women do. And it took me, it took me a long time to, to process that information. Um, and I just want to go back on what you, what I said then too about um, cesarean rates. And I think you're right in the fact that women don't have an issue with cesarean rates if other mums are choosing them. But it's important to say mm. it's when an obstetrician is coercing someone to have one for the benefit of themselves because that happens as well. And we know that I'm not Absolutely. I'm not for any of that rubbish. Yeah. I just want to make that really clear that um, it's, yeah, it, we know that that happens and that's not okay. That's not. And that's the thing. That's been a theme throughout this conversation. You know, it, it is up to you as the woman and a lot of the time it, it can be difficult, particularly if it is your first time birthing, to know what questions to ask. And I remember having all those same thoughts and feelings before and after birth. So uh, that I just think that that has been a theme in this conversation that, yeah, it is. it should be all about the woman and what she wants, her thoughts and feelings and fears and, and traumas as well. 100%. And help her, help her work out what she does want. She doesn't know. Yes. She doesn't know what she doesn't know, which is why yes. we need to be talking to women way before birth, way before pregnancy. You are preaching to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want people to know about pelvic organ prolapse and birth trauma? That it's heavy. And be really mindful when you're going to jump on social media and tell women to stop scaring women with their birth story of trauma. That hurts. I can promise you when I read things like that, even now, they're like, oh, stop stop Mm. trying to scare monger women in pregnancy. Um, No, that's not on the agenda and Mm. it never will be. What we want to do is to make sure women aren't blindsided like we were because this information is there. It's just not readily available and accessible and we want to prevent the trauma from happening to anyone else. This is not horror stories. I get really upset when people say, don't tell your horror stories because, yes, they are horrible, but horror stories implies that it's made up or exacerbated. And for myself and women who have been through the level of trauma that we have, right, we would do anything. We would, like, downplay it more than anything, to try and protect those who love us and around us. Like I didn't tell anyone for so long that what happened to us yeah. because you don't want other people to hurt. 
And that's likewise for other people who are planning to become pregnant. There's no way I wrote this book to scare people who are becoming pregnant. I wrote this book to scare people who are in charge for caring for us who want to become pregnant mm. because they've had the systemic issues and problems since the beginning of time. We've got so much medical advances, but we're not keeping up and it's still happening day after day after day. I want them to feel scared because you think about what just happened in the last two years when this virus entered our life, we became scared and we took action. We washed our hands, we wore masks, we isolated, we stayed home. Mm. I want the people who are in charge for caring for us to feel scared so they take action to help women and prevent this. It's a lot, isn't it? And uh, it's so interesting being now in the birth world and a part of these conversations because I even had someone email me the other day thanking me for allowing women to share their birth stories regardless of what it was and what it looked like. Yeah. Because And she used the words like, um, you know, trauma dumping, that people were telling her it was trauma dumping. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And I just, it blows my mind. It yeah. blows my mind. Yeah. And I, I am a strong believer. We cannot, we cannot hide the realities of modern birth right now because now more than ever we need women's stories because it is through the people birthing that we can actually understand what the hell is happening and, and how, and how we it, can right? go about change. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing all of this with me today. I, it doesn't get easier hearing your story and what you have been through and what you live through every day even. And I, I am just in awe of you, Steph, and <laughs> what you've lived through and, and that you are this incredible, kind, loving human that just wants better in the world. And I just think that's, that is just so admirable and you should be so proud of yourself and how far you've come. Thank you. As well. Um, I do have one last question for you, though. Yeah, I love it. Go for uh, it. I wanted to I wanted to congratulate you on your um, new ebook, Tips and Tricks for Living with Pelgan Organ Prolapse. I'll put all links and everything in the show notes so that people know how to find you and, sure. and what's available to them. But what's the next move for Brave Mama? I love this question. I really do because it's you've asked it at this really pinnacle point. So I have been doing this and alongside me an amazing team of volunteers at the Brave Mama community who work around the clock like 24-7. We are always looking at ways of sharing information, helping women. We've got a free online support community, written, have two books, a short film, a podcast, we always think, well, okay, what's next? So I love this question. I will always continue to do this for my daughter and all of our future girls. So there are things in the pipeline, things that are practical like going into universities and giving keynote speaks to um, midwives and obstetricians. So we're planting the seed really early on for them. So when they come out yes. and they're 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 the ones that are caring for us they've just got a little bit more insight because to be fair 
they don't know what they don't know either. <laughs> if they've never, yeah, absolutely. They've never had a child or they've never even been in a birth. And then, but yet they get that insight into a woman who's, who's suffering with prolapse, like, oh, hang on a minute. Let's just take a step back. That's what we're planning on doing. So the second element is to be educating in high schools for girls in their pelvic floor. So when we're talking about all the period and sex education, we're also talking about the pelvic floor. It is the core of who we are. It is the muscle that keeps us going. And so I want to make sure that we are not going to make our girls get to 40 years old and say, what? My vagina is not my vulva. I don't understand. Yeah. And then the next thing is, which are probably the most thing I want to share, it's very new, is that I want other mums and birthing people who have been on this journey, either through trauma and or have prolapse, when they come out the other side, how to find joy and how to have a fulfilling life, how to find a new career, basically holding space for women who have been just like me, go and do something else. Because I love my life. I love everything I do. And I want other people to have access to that. So that's what we'll be doing next. Wow. I mean, it's funny, you know, because I've had all the same ideas. (laughs) But I think that just shows that we who have lived through what we've lived through are now screaming for things to change. Yes. And then showing people that, you know what, I'm not going to wait around because I am going to start the movement and I am going to bring that change. And I agree with you. It needs to come from the very beginning, learning about female anatomy, learning about your body, knowing your individual body, having a look at your body. (laughs) I mean, none of this should be taboo. We should be having these conversations and, Honestly, who better for it to come from than you, Steph? So congratulations. And I'm so looking forward to seeing how this all how this all goes for you and yeah, what's next. I'm just saying, Amber, I can see a team up happening, a really good collaboration happening here, because everything you were just saying to me, right back at you, sister. I would just like to thank Amber Lee with my hand on heart for letting me share this story for her podcast and audience. I feel like our podcasts do have a lot of synergy and the people listening probably have very similar issues, concerns, and are looking for the same things. So I encourage you to go and check out her podcast. There is a direct link in the show notes where you can just click on and start listening to the episodes that you feel will help benefit you. So that's it for this week. We will be back on track with our normal program as of next week. Until then, bye for now. Ray, my-